0: You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Okay, good afternoon. I'm Dave Power. I'm from the Bournemouth University, and I'm going to talk today a bit about Paul's maritime archaeology, but in. Even in particular, one particular part of it. Poole's got a long and proud tradition of maritime archaeology that goes back into the 60s and the first excavation of a wreck site in Poole was actually the Iron Age logboat here that was recovered about 1965 and it's work that's been funded by a range of individuals, all of which are along here. And we've even got a beer group locally called Studland Bay Wreck that relates to one of the archaeological sites of Studland Bay Wreck <coughs> But what I'm going to concentrate on today is one of the almost unique features about maritime archaeology in Poole, and that's the fact that at the bottom of Pool Bay we have seven armoured vehicles, nowhere near the shore, about 4,000 yards away from the beach, which is a specific distance and there's a specific reason for their presence there. And it relates back to this Operation Overlord, the invasion of Europe in June 1944, which is a well-known story told to film over 70 years now, um, and we all know about it. Uh, The Allied armies land in Normandy. they go through Europe, they have a couple of problems in the Ardennes and Arnhem, and they end up on a line here across central Europe where they meet the Russians in May 1945, and then everybody goes home for for tea and medals at the end of it. But that isn't the whole story. There are a number of other aspects to it which are largely forgotten now. (coughs) One of the first is that at the time of the invasion, Eisenhower, the supreme commander, wrote two letters. One was a press release in event of victory, and the other one was in case of failure, the announcement of the failure of the landings. And it's important to remember that in June 1944, the allies experience of amphibious warfare wasn't a list of total successes gallipoli in the first world war which is celebrating the 100th anniversary of the withdrawal from gallipoli and a complete disaster dieppe in 1942 uh, it was a raid rather than an invasion but it's not seen as successful and there were a number of significant alterations from the normandy plan that resulted from that Salerno in italy successful but not particularly efficient, and in the months running up to D-Day, the Allies had an army on a beach in Italy they couldn't break out from. So the whole of run up to Normandy, the background to that is the fact that they've got what Churchill described, I thought we were hurling a wildcat onto the shore, but all I got was a stranded whale. There's a huge problem with landing armies on beaches and being able to break out from them. Uh, and specifically in Europe, you were not assaulting an (coughs) unfortified beach, you were assaulting a prepared defences called the Atlantic War, whose purpose was to halt the assaulting infantry on the beach, the German plan was to halt the invasion on the beach, uh, and then to destroy any landing craft that were bringing in reinforcements, but specifically bringing in armoured vehicles, because it was armoured vehicles that could break through these defences. And the idea was they would be coming in landing craft, so. You stop the infantry on the beach with with machine guns and you use heavy artillery to sink the initial invasion ships. The Allies had sort of a plan around that, which was to use specialised armour to break through this under the command of uh, Major General Hobart here, who was the genius that invented this, who'd been sacked from his job at the beginning of the war because he was an exceptionally difficult individual, but he was the man for this job. And he created all of this that the 79th Armour Division, that created these vehicles that allowed the, the work to go ahead. Importantly for this story, it was all, you probably can't read it, that says top secret there, a lot of the records that relate to this were actively destroyed at the time. No <coughs> information lying around that was going to give um, information to the enemy to, to, for them to understand what was going to happen. So, it isn't the fact that a lot of this is accidentally lost to history. There was a specific campaign to destroy these records at the time that the work was going ahead. For this story, the ones we're thinking about in terms of specialised armour are something called duplex drive tanks, DD tanks, which are simply a tank, a standard tank, that is on to float. There's one there. This is in Paul Bay, that's old Abbey for those you who know the Pool. Duplex drive because they have a gearbox that allows them to either drive the tracks or propeller, either a single with the early Valentine models or a twin propeller with the later Sherman ones. And there's one in operation on D Day, and here's one during a training exercise. They were made to float by the application of a canvas skirt designed by the people that made Lilo's. So you imagine. You're going to war in a 34 tonne tank that's made floatable by a lilo, and you'll launch 4,000 yards off a beach, and you steam your tank towards the beach, and the best that can happen is that you land and you fight the most efficient army in Europe. The worst that can happen is you sink, and a lot of them have a tendency to sink. If you look at this here, this is Paul Bay, lots of white water around the vehicle, not heavy weather if you look around it. They tended to slam, they brought water on board, they got pumps to account for that, but in heavy weather, much more than about a third of a metre of sea, and they were tempted to sink. Uh, The plan was, quite simply, to send these five minutes ahead of the assaulting waves of infantry. That isn't actually what happened in the end, they tended to land just after them. They came in on their own, so they were launched... Plan was to launch them 4,000 yards offshore. So they went in landing craft, it wasn't obvious where they were. They land on the beach, this is Utah Beach in the American sector, and there they are alongside the assaulting infantry, so they can overcome the machine gun posts to allow the infantry to get off the beach. It's in the whole plan for Normandy revolved around capturing the beach, created the beach said that he could then supply an army with a building army that we could break down from. Nothing would work if you couldn't capture the beachhead. So everything else that was going on wouldn't function if these tanks didn't do their job. So they had to work efficiently for about three hours. And after that, they were superfluous to the whole operation. Uh, where's the connection with Paul? Well, Paul was one of the proving grounds for them or one of the build-up exercises just before the invasion. In April 1944, Operation Smash occurred, which was the largest pre-operation exercise, and seven of them sank. Six here, exactly 4,000 yards off the beach. So they got off the landing craft and they almost certainly went straight down. Now, whether that's a combination of heavy weather, the reports from the time talk about the fact it suddenly got rough, which is, that's always the excuse for ships. I suspect it's more likely that they were run down by the launching landing craft. So six were lost here, and this one was lost in a separate exercise. So we have seven of these in the Bag. Uh, there's one of them, the one that is surviving and complete, complete with this tub it's on, which is actually one of those here. We do know from them, one is that most of them are damaged because they were blown up by the whole Navy in the 1980s because they were thought to contain munitions. They did. What those explosions did was spread munitions all over the seabed, rather than keeping them contained in one place. They couldn't find one of them, so that's still intact. We know because of that those incidents, one, inside the tanks, it's an anaerobic environment, so you still get organics. We get uniforms, we get written instructions, we get a whole host of things. So the stuff that men were equipped with to land in Normandy is contained within these tanks. And we also know that this one here, which is the only surviving Valentine duplex knife tank that survived by, by accident, um, we didn't it wasn't known how the skirt system worked, but the material looted, and it was looting from these tanks, has enabled this tank to be reconstructed. So there's a significant amount of research information contained within these. Uh, Paul's got the most, but he's he's not the only collection of those that are around. Um, There's some British Centaur tanks off the Isle of Wight, and armoured bulldozers. They're not amphibious, but they're part of this specialised armour. There's a single duplex-drive Valentine tank near Selsey, which may have been the first one lost. Uh, There's five Valentine duplex-drive tanks in the Norway Firth in Scotland. And there's one Sherman, which if anybody's ever been to Slapton Sands, that's up on the beach now, but that was lost in an accident in a similar exercise, but not because of weather, because there was one of the armoured plates not off the vehicle. So when it got in the water, it was flooded and it sank. A good way to avoid the invasion if you don't drown, I suppose. Um, so what is their significance? Well, D Day was a, an amazing success in the end. Um, and casualties were a fraction of what was expected. But if you take these armored tanks out of that, and we do actually have a case study of that, because at Omaha, the American sector, nearly all of them sank due to heavy weather on the way in. Um, And the best example in terms of what happened at Omaha is if you've ever seen, say, in Private Ryan, (coughs) all The Longest day, you'll know that it was a complete almost because the infantry couldn't get off the beach because they didn't have the armoured support with them to achieve that task. If you take that armoured support away from the rest of the beaches, you could have ended up in a situation which was fierce was that the invasion fails, And it's not impossible that that would have been the case. In fact, if you get into a what-if situation, um, and I'm not really good at gazing into crystal balls, which is what you're do- doing with this, but if you take uh, the opinion of people better than me, eminent historians that have looked at this, you get the conclusion that without Hobart's funnies, which were these tanks, there would have been significant problems on D-Day, which means the invasion may have failed. If that was the case, Nazi Germany would have been defeated by the Soviet army. But that wouldn't have occurred in 1945, that would have occurred back in 1946 or 47. And the Soviet army would have kept on going until it was on the coast of France. Um, in order to prevent that, <coughs> um, by the middle of ni- by the summer of nineteen forty five, the US Air Force has atomic bombs. And the chances are that <coughs> in order to bring the war in Europe to an early conclusion, atomic warfare wouldn't have started in Japan, but it would have started in Northern Europe in the summer of nineteen forty five. It's all a bit what-if, but it's not an unreasonable argument. Um, in terms of the remains of uh, Operation Smash, the most famous remains of Fort Henry, which is an armoured bunker on the cliffs above the, the, uh, the bay, which had got nothing to do with defence and nothing to do with the exercise, other than it was a shelter in which Eisenhower, the King and Churchill and a number of others watched the uh, exercises from. So well, that's the bomb that the exercises will, will watch from. Uh, the vehicles is not quite, and that is in this part of the missed part story. That's now a great building uh, because of its connection with this. The story of uh, the significance and protection of the vehicles is not quite as good. They are, they are capable of protection under the Ancient Monuments and Areas Act, and in fact, the ones in Paul were put forward for protection. As were the Centaur tanks that I've just pointed out to you. Uh, as a result of the application for this, it was decided to have a policy of not operating the Ancient Monuments and Areas Act 1979 underwater, which means it is physically impossible to protect them because the only other heritage legislation that could work is the Protection of Shipwrecks Act, and they're not shipwrecks, they're vehicles. So we have a policy of actively failing to prevent to, to protect them. Um, the documentation even says they're significant objects. The wreck therefore meets the criteria for scheduling, but we've got a policy where they're not going to schedule it, which is an interesting argument. So, uh, to summarise all of this, and that's what they usually look like underwater. There's the, the, the gun off the top of one of the ones in the pool. Uh, without overlords, Europe would have been a very different place in the second half of the 20th century. Overlord was made possible by the use of specialised armour. The story is not, not very well known. It doesn't appear in any of the major films and, or any of the major histories of armoured forces. Um, the remains of these vehicles littered at the south coast of England and also in Scotland, another training area. At the time of their use, the historic record was actively destroyed. N- nobody wanted evidence around that, that was going to tell the opposition what was going to happen. The sites of significant research and educational potential, because it's an unknown story, it's very significant, it's largely unknown. They also connect well with normal family history. One of maritime Archaeology's pro- problems is seafaring communities tend to be communities on their own. And they're not part of mainstream society. This, this is a military, a citizen's army, because at the end of the war, that is much more part of normal history. They're subject to active decay um, and looting, and that looting we know increases with that decay as they become open, um, as you can see from the pictures before. They're hidden from public view, and therefore, we seem to actively promote their own protection, rather than their protection. Uh, in the murky world of 20th-century maritime archaeology, you're much better off on of the beach if you are a block out because you can be protected than you are in the water because we get ignored. This show is produced by Chris Webster and Tristan Boyle. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.